This is the World War II Radio Podcast. A date which will live in infamy. This is London. We shall fight in the hills. We shall never surrender. Go ahead, Berlin. This is the National Broadcasting Company. Welcome to the World War II Radio Podcast. Today we have a double dose of news updates. The August 20th and August 21st, 1943 editions of the CBS Morning News. They include analysis and updates on the war from London, Australia, Algiers, Washington, and New York. The World War II Radio Podcast is a Brick Pickle Media production. If you like the show, please leave feedback on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen. And be sure to visit our website at brickpicklemedia.com slash podcast, where you can find links to past episodes and other information. You can also find us on Facebook at facebook.com slash ww2radio. Thanks for listening, and we hope you enjoy today's episode of the World War II Radio Podcast. CBS World News brings you the early morning reports of its correspondents at home and abroad. But first, here are the highlights of the latest news as received up to 8 a.m. Eastern Wartime, Friday, August 20th. RAF mosquitoes again bomb Berlin as fighters hit enemy airfields on the continent. Two small Italian islands surrendered to American naval expedition. Italian mainland bombed again. Russians continue drive on Kharkov. Allies improve positions in the South Pacific. Now here is Hugh Conover. Allied ground forces in the Southwest Pacific are busy on two fronts. We've landed on some American troops on Banga Island, just off recently conquered Munda, and the Central Solomons. This is one of many small islands in the area where the Japs are maintaining minute forces, but enough men to bother our major drives. General MacArthur's communique says the Japs have even been shelling Munda from small islets off the New Georgia coast. To the west, on New Guinea, American and Australian troops have now consolidated their positions within about three miles of the airdrome at Salamawa. Our airmen, meanwhile, have again attacked Jap barges around Lai. For the first time in days, General MacArthur's communique makes no mention of Jap nuisance raids in this area. This is probably due to the heavy losses. 215 planes the enemy suffered at Weiwak. Tokyo propagandists, who still haven't told their people about the debacle at Weiwak, are now warning the Japanese that they must send as many planes to the South Pacific as we are sending MacArthur's men. Now for our first report from overseas, we take you to CBS London, Paul Manning reporting. There is a growing feeling here. Big new military events are just around the corner. A new crop of familiar rumors has started going around London. One is that we're going to strike across the travel in the North Sea very soon. Another story says it will be Italy and southern France simultaneously. Farmers. 
They know too well how small the problem is, and that if British tanks units are to prepare for battle, there must be some sacrifices. Our increasing interest in knocking out German airports, the flying coast from France to Holland, has caused speculation here, too. We've been so successful that German bomber squadrons have been moved well inland to protect them from Allied planes. One RAF commentator said that some German fighter fuels that fly extremely close to the channel have also been abandoned in favor of stations further back. And last night, more British planes again harassed these enemy airfields in France and Belgium, while mosquito bombers nibble once more at Berlin. One bomber is missing. Our tactics in forcing the Luftwaffe back looked very much like the German tactics in the summer of 1940. Then they were trying to whittle down the RAF to make our advance fields unusual as a necessary prelude to invasion. Now, we appear to be doing the same thing. But whether it's the prelude to our invasion of German Channel Coast is anybody's guess. But expert opinion here says that if this plan is on the Churchill-Roosevelt agenda, don't look for it to happen too soon. Meanwhile, the Germans themselves, who are stationed just opposite England, continue to rush their defenses to completion. Residents of the South English Coast were taken yesterday by heavy explosions which took place on the other side of the channel. The Germans were blasting new gun emplacements. I return you now to CBS in New York. In this country, there have been new developments looking toward post-war employment, educational and monetary policies. For details, we take you to CBS Washington, Lee White reporting. There have been three new developments in post-war planning. Last night, the American Federation of Teachers and AF of L affiliate passed a resolution urging Congress to pledge American participation in a democratic world federation. Secretary of the Treasury Morgenthau has announced that Harry White's plan for international currency stabilization has been revised to meet objections from Canada and other countries. For one thing, the voting provision has been modified so that the United States alone could not dominate a post-war currency union simply by vetoing the wishes of other nations. Mr. Morgenthau says the plan is still unofficial, but he regards it as indispensable if we are to avoid the monetary collapse and currency inflation which followed in the wake of the First World War. But the most specific post-war development is the Bureau of Labor Statistics report to the AF of L, estimating that from 7 to 12 million people will find themselves unemployed within six months after the close of hostilities. The Bureau has offered a six-point program for management, labor, and government to follow in order to avoid a repetition of the widespread unemployment and consequent demoralization after the First World War. The Bureau advocates a rapid conversion of industry from war to peacetime production, a public works program to provide temporary jobs, adequate financial assistance to veterans, a retarded demobilization of the armed forces in order to ease the shock of unemployment, rapid retirement from industry of women, children, and the aged, and finally, a federal job placement service to coordinate reemployment efforts and to rehabilitate the wounded. The War Production Board is already at work, it's been announced, on a plan for the partial reconversion of industry to the production of certain consumer commodities. There's now a critical shortage of at least three appliances, washing machines, electric irons, and mechanical refrigerators. There are no more mechanical refrigerators or even old-fashioned ice boxes available to go into war housing projects. And in industrial areas where commercial laundries are swamped, 
housewife, housewives are unable to obtain either washing machines or irons with which to do their laundering at home. The WPB, therefore, hopes to make limited quantities of raw materials available for the production of such items for distribution to needy consumers on a priority basis sometime next spring. During the third quarter of this year, 100,000 tons of steel was allotted to civilian production. During the last quarter, this tonnage will be increased to 125,000, and this figure may possibly be doubled for the first quarter of 1944. I return you now to New York and Hugh Conover. For the latest developments in the Mediterranean war zone, we take you now to CBS Algiers, John Daly reporting. A United States naval force occupied the islands of Lepare and Stromboli, the two main islands of the Aeolian or Lepare group off the northeastern coast of Sicily last Tuesday morning, as the first American troops entered Messina to end the Battle of Sicily. Evidently, the occupation was without incident. I stood on the tip of Cape Malapso in Sicily on Monday afternoon, looking at the islands through glasses. At that time, it was evident that the Axis had not fortified them in any real sense. They knew we had occupied the Cape, and the tremendous German and Italian supply dumps fell into our hands there. But no artillery fire came from the islands, although the Germans did try a five-plane bombing raid in an attempt to blow up the supply dumps at Malacca. The islands are volcanic, mountainous, and of little use to us as bases of operation. But their occupation closes the ring around the ankle and foot of the Italian boots. Meanwhile, the Northwestern African Air Forces and naval units are launching shattering blows at the vital and inadequate Axis communications throughout southern Italy. South of Rome, the Axis lifeline of communications consists almost entirely of railways and roads hugging the coastline. The junction points controlling traffic are few, vital, and widely spaced. Yesterday, flying fortresses in great strength, supported by fighters, hit at one of the most important of them, and also won a great victory in a dogfight with enemy fighters. Foggia, the control point for practically all the communications in the eastern part of southern Italy, took a terrific selection. Bombs smashed into the freight yards, electrical installations, and industrial buildings of the city in great numbers. How important Foggia is to the Axis was demonstrated when they sent from 40 to 50 fighters up to try and break up the raid. In the dogfight that followed, it lasted for more than an hour, the forts and escorting P-38 definitely shot down 34 Axis planes, with 12 others listed as Tubbables, still others number of Bombani. Liberators, our four-motored B-24s from the Middle East Command, hit Foggia again later in the day, and RAF Wellingtons attacked the city last night. All up and down the east and west coasts of southern Italy, railway towns and stretches of the rail line and highway hugging the coast were bombed by other Air Force units or shelled by the Allied Navy. In all the air operations yesterday and last night, a total of 40 enemy planes were destroyed. Our losses were 17. This is John Bailey at Allied Force Headquarters in North Africa, returning you now to CBS in New York. Italy's King Victor Emmanuel told Sicilians by radio today that the present isolation of Sicily from Italy will not last for long. He made no mention of continued prosecution of the war. We had hoped at this time to bring you a report direct from our correspondent in Russia, but atmospheric conditions prevent our contacting that point. However, here are the latest press dispatches from the Russian front. Russian forces closed in upon besieged Kharkov from three sides yesterday with gains of three to seven miles despite repeated German counterattacks. Moscow announced today 
that some 2,400 Germans were wiped out and 30 villages captured as the Red Army smashed forward on the west, northwest, and southeast sides of the city. One escape route to the southwest along the line of Krasnodar Railway remained open to the defense garrison, but a Pravda dispatch said the German high command had ordered a fight to the death within the city. The communique reported that yesterday's heaviest fighting centered northwest of the city. Russian detachments there overwhelmed several enemy counterattacks and successfully advanced, killing 1,500 Germans, knocking out 30 enemy tanks, and capturing large quantities of war equipment. Another Russian column smashing frontally on the city from the northeast last was reported in the city's outer suburbs, but sniping and hand-to-hand -hand street fighting slowed down the advance. In a parallel drive on the German base of Bryansk, 240 miles to the north, Red troops seized more than 20 villages after dislodging the Germans from several fortified positions and were reported less than 20 miles from the city. Gains also were reported on the central front southwest of spas de which is about 80 miles north of Bryansk. The greatest Soviet strength, however, was exerted against Kharkov, and full encirclement of the Ukrainian metropolis appeared to be the objective. The offensive has carried out a great wheeling movement, 85 miles west and northwest of the city. Russian units now stand less than eight miles from Sumy in the northwest and 25 miles from Poltava to the west. Both these cities are junctions on a rail network leading to Kiev and the enemy's Dnieper River defenses. Today's communique said a guerrilla detachment had captured a large town in the Poltava area. The Red Army forces to the west and southwest sides of the city, in addition to driving inward toward Kharkov, presumably were fanning out in an effort to effect a junction and seal off the city. And that's the latest news from the Russian war front. In Quebec, the Anglo-American conferences continue today with the keynote set by British Information Minister Brendan Bracken. He says our leaders are planning to bomb, burn, and ruthlessly destroy in every way available to us the people responsible for this war. Bracken also told newsmen that the decisions reached at Quebec will be made public in the form of attacks on the enemy. And he promised again that Britain will go all out to help defeat the Jets. And that's the news from Canada. Relations between Denmark and Germany appear on the verge of breaking. Representatives of Denmark's five political parties are meeting in Copenhagen today to answer a German demand that Danish saboteurs be put to death. Inasmuch as the death penalty is unknown in Danish law, it's presumed the Danes will stand fast against the German demand. Meanwhile, sabotage increases. From Stockholm comes word that Pierre Laval is trying to form a new half-democratic government, but all Frenchmen of democratic tendencies whom he has approached have turned him down flatly. British Ambassador Sir Samuel Hoare visits Franco of Spain today, and some observers believe Franco may pass on peace feelers from Italy. Italian officers arriving in Switzerland say there are more than a million and a half refugees wandering through northern Italy, most of them threatened with starvation. These officers told newsmen in Bern that Allied air attacks have reduced the Italian war potential by 60% during the past month. And to a Germany fearful of forthcoming Allied air blows, Propaganda Minister Goebbels today offered this news. The Germans are working on a new secret weapon which may soon bring the country relief from air attacks. It's now under construction. Goebbels' weekly article was headlined, The Realities of War. And that's the latest news. Once again, Columbia has brought you the early morning reports of its correspondents at home and abroad. This morning you heard from Paul Manning in London, Lee White in Washington, and John Daly in Algiers. This is Hugh Conover reporting for CBS World News, 
This is the Columbia Broadcasting System. CBS World News brings you the early morning reports of its correspondents at home and abroad. But first, here are the highlights of the latest news as received up to 8 a.m. Eastern War Time, Saturday, August 21st. American warships have bombarded southern Italy for the second time within 36 hours. The Russians have gained new ground along the Eastern Front. There is increasing speculation over the possibility of an imminent Allied invasion. And in the Southwest Pacific, the Japs have been forced to retreat to the inner defenses of Salamawa on New Guinea. Now, here is Gordon Eaton. The Russian front is aflame over a wide area this morning. Soviet forces are pressing forward relentlessly against the German strongholds of Kharkov, Bryansk, and Smolensk. On the Kharkov front, the Russians have captured the railway town of Lebedin, a hundred miles northwest of Kharkov, and high watermark of last winter's offensive. There is some speculation that the Russians will push on to Kanatop, which is northwest of Lebedin, and the capture of which would endanger the German setup in the entire Ukraine. London sources say the Russians at Kharkov have now encircled all but 13 miles of the city, and strong infantry and tank attacks are steadily cutting down the German shrinking escape corridor southwest of the city. Now for our first overseas report and news direct from the South Pacific, we take you to CBS Australia, Larry Meyer reporting. Now, this is Larry Meyer, speaking in Australia. The studio from which I am broadcasting tonight is bustling with excitement. For well, this is federal election night in Australia, and in a minute, we may have some results. Meanwhile, the picture on the fighting front continues to improve. Ridge by ridge and gully by gully, the Japanese are being pushed back toward Salamaua. Allied troops now are within three miles of Salamaua Airdrome. The inner defense perimeter of Salamaua is believed to be composed of a line of dugouts, pillboxes, and foxholes around the airfield. And the Japs are believed to be in full retreat toward this line. To the northwest, America's Air Force showed that it was fully on the alert against any Japanese attempt to make up to this week's losses at WEWAC. As soon as reconnaissance planes found that Jap air reinforcements were being brought to Borum drones near WEWAC, we attacked at once. Five Jap planes were destroyed on the ground, 19 in the air. We lost only two. Well, the polls closed only two hours ago in what both factions described as the most important election in the history of Australia. It was for a new Senate and House of Representatives. Inasmuch as party membership in the House determines choice of a prime minister, the election was the equivalent of a complete congressional and presidential election in the United States. On the basis of early returns, a slight lead is held by the party now in power, the Labor Party, headed by Prime Minister John Curtin. Trailing in the early returns is the opposition party, headed by Arthur Fack. Returns are sparse so far, but the trend is in line with early predictions that the Curtin government will remain in office. The issues boil down to this. Which faction can conduct Australia's war efforts the better? Prime Minister Curtin's Labour Party wants to continue as a one-party government. Mr. Fadden's opposition wants an all-party national government like Great Britain. American soldiers and sailors took a keen interest in the election, especially the colorful booths outside the polling places where candidates are allowed to electioneer almost until a voter is stamping his ballot. Many Americans wondered why there was such a big turnout of voters, 
until they were told, you've got to vote. If you don't, you're fined two pounds. This is Larry Meyer speaking in our space. We turn you now to CBS in New York. Next, a direct report on the light operations in the Mediterranean as we take you to CBS Algiers, Farnsworth Fowl reporting. Following up Thursday's big raid on the East Coast Rail Center of Foggia, the Strategic Air Force yesterday struck at rail junctions around Naples. B-26 marauders attacked the marshalling yards at Aversa on the line to Rome, and B-25 Mitchells went to Benevento, 40 miles northeast of Naples, on the main line over the mountains to Foggia. Again yesterday, they ran into increased fighter opposition over both targets. About 50 Messerschmitts and Fokker Wolf tried to intercept. Escorting P-38 Lightning shot down nine of them, and the marauders accounted for five more. A Staff Sergeant Gunner remarked, it felt like old times to get a shot at an ME-109. Lately, they've been reluctant to fight. The Lightning pilots also reported that their opponents were more aggressive than they've been in recent weeks. Fighter bombers yesterday attacked the airfield at Monserrato in Sardinia, and others were over southern Italy as usual. Intruders and bombers were over Italy at night as well. During the last three nights, the British Navy sank seven enemy landing craft off Scalea. Further south, at Gioia Tauro, the American Navy started large fires in enemy positions which they shelled. The Navy, who went into the Lipari Islands on the day that Messina fell, announced that the, Germany, that, uh, the Germans had already removed their military personnel. It's not yet known whether the political prisoners on Lipari were also deported before we arrived. But over in Sicily, the Allied government authorities have announced the dissolution of the organization that sent so many of these enemies of fascism to the dreaded prison colony. The Italian secret police, known by the initials OVRA, is no longer a part of the system of maintaining public order. The AMGOT authorities find that the ordinary Italian police, the Carabinieri, are cooperating loyally. In a new proclamation, AMGOT has set forth the legal rights of the people of Sicily. No person, says the proclamation, shall be imprisoned by any Italian official unless he is duly charged with the commission of a crime, and the crime must be specified. And nobody can be kept in prison without prompt trial. This destroys Mussolini's so-called law of public safety, which left the citizens at the mercy of the police and the other fascist authorities. The syndical contributions have also been stopped. They were supposed to go toward health and unemployment insurance for factory and farm workers. But anyone who ever tried to obtain these benefits soon found that the money went to lie in the pockets of the fascist bureaucrats in Rome. A genuine scheme of social security for agricultural workers and employers is to be set up instead. I return you now to CBS New York. Now for news of the British theater of operations, we take you to CBS London, Paul Manning reporting. London's interest in the Quebec conferences has slackened off considerably this morning. This is partly due to the absence of any hard news of the Canadian meeting, but chiefly can be attributed to the Russians. Today, the greatest offensive of the Red Army's whole summer campaign is being waged along a thousand-mile front. The Soviets have launched new attacks west of Rostov and Don, and in the Luki sector of Finland, while continuing to press forward at Kharkov. London newspapers have this offensive as their lead story this morning and the mile-by-mile mile progress is being followed by most people here. 
At London, they are hoping Kharkov will become another Stalingrad for the Germans. But any such smashing defeat, in the opinion of some Londoners, does not reduce the necessity of a new front in Western Europe. Moscow has made another demand for Allied landings on the continent. London also wants a new front, and the one decision they wish from Quebec is a go-ahead signal on this project. People here are pretty well convinced, too, that bombing alone cannot defeat Germany. They say that to defeat Germany, she must be invaded. A Gallup poll appears in the London News Chronicle this morning on this question of bombing Germany from the war. 69% of those who were asked said that the air power by itself could not win for us. Only 19% continue to be disciples of the theme, victory through air power. Interest in the fate of Italy is still as strong as ever. London continues to speculate whether our landings of the future will be on the Italian mainland. There is still vague hope that bombing will force Italy to capitulate. News this morning describes heavy damage to Italian railway junctions and ports. But there is still no indication that Axis preparations to resist have been halted by air attacks. On the domestic front, Britain's big worry this morning is the sudden drop in coal output. Production has fallen 500,000 tons a week in the past month. This is England's lowest figure in two years, and with autumn not far off, that is indeed serious for this country. Especially so when so much coal tonnage is now being diverted to North Africa to run military railroads. The Ministry of Fuel explained the sharp drop by stating that holidays taken by miners during July and August is the responsible factor. And there are no air raids to report to you this morning. No British bombers went to Hamburg or the Ruhr, and no German plane crossed the English coast last night. Even the residents of Berlin managed to get a full night's sleep. For the first time in more than a week, mosquito bombers failed to call on Berlin. They've been flying over that German capital with the regularity of an airmail plane, dropping a few 500-pound bombs and then returning to their base here in England. I return you now to CBS of New York and Gordon Eaton. The Roosevelt-Churchill conferences in Quebec have been the center of much speculation as to what the Allies are planning next. A goodly share of this speculation comes from Washington. For that and home front developments, we take you to CBS Washington, Robert Lewis reporting. Although the real hard news coming from the Allied conferences in Quebec has been sparse, many military and political observers still here in Washington believe that this one may prove to be one of the most important of their six conferences. High on the agenda, it's believed, are problems dealing with Japan in strictly a military nature and Russia in both a military and political vein. But by and large, most Washington observers are waiting for further evidences and information before going out on a limb and predicting the nature of the Roosevelt-Churchill conversations. Not necessarily connected with the conferences, but seen by some as an indication of the way the wind is blowing, are two new developments, one affecting the Navy, the other the Merchant Marine. The Navy Department's announcement yesterday that a new Air Operations Division has been established is thought to be a move designed to intensify the Navy's aerial hammering of the enemy. Navy Secretary Knox, in making the announcement, told newsmen that we think this will systematize and we hope it will intensify air warfare. Of the Merchant Marine, it's now reported that the combined chiefs of staff have given final approval to a United States merchant ship construction program calling for more than 20 million deadweight tons of shipping next year. This year's goal is some one million tons under this figure, but indications now are that actual production will exceed the goals. On strictly home front matters, 
the challenge laid down by Montgomery Ward to the War Labor Board on the constitutionality of the Smith-Connolly War Labor Disputes Act raises the interesting possibility that an employer may be the first to press for a court ruling on the validity of the so-called anti-strike bill. The company's position was disclosed last night when the board made public a directive extending to 800 employees provision for maintenance of union membership, checkoff of dues, and arbitration. The company maintains the law is unconstitutional, but the board replied that it would accept the validity of the law until it's held to be unconstitutional by the courts. This is Robert Lewis in Washington. Now back to CBS New York and Gordon Eaton. The possibility of peace for Finland is seen in a Helsinki dispatch to Stockholm today. According to this dispatch, a delegation representing a number of political groups called on Finnish President Riti yesterday and demanded that the government take definite steps to investigate the possibility of a separate peace with Russia. This new move coincides with a series of conferences among Finnish officials and military leaders on Finland's status in the war. It renews speculation that the government is seeking a formula that will permit peace. And that's the top news concerning Finland. A Danish broadcast says that a general strike has broken out in Odense, a Danish city which is under martial law because 14 German soldiers were killed in clashes with Danish soldiers. The strike may spread to all Denmark, the broadcast adds, unless German demands for trial of Danish saboteurs by German judges in German courts are withdrawn. Danish law does not sanction the death penalty. Thus, saboteurs could be punished only with imprisonment. Swiss dispatches say the subjugated people's hatred of the Germans is reaching the breaking point. They add that only an allied landing on the continent is necessary to start revolts everywhere. Along this same line, German occupation authorities in France have instituted new measures of security. An ultimatum has been issued to Frenchmen to hand over their firearms. And the Axis has announced that a new law is being prepared to provide a special summary trial which may inflict the death penalty for the destruction of crops. The ultimatum warned French patriots that if they have not surrendered arms and ammunition by Tuesday, they'll be liable to the death penalty. Amnesty is promised to all who obey and call in. And that's the latest news. Once again, Columbia has brought you the early morning reports of its correspondents at home and abroad. This morning you heard from Larry Meyer in Australia, Farnsworth Fowle in Algiers, Paul Manning in London, and Robert Lewis in Washington. This is Gordon Eaton reporting for CBS World News. This is the Columbia Broadcasting System.